Hi, you're listening to Estranged, and we got a we got a comeback guest. Um, we have Benjamin Studebaker from Indiana, and we've had him on a previous episode, uh, but I wasn't on it, so I'm glad to to be able to talk to him as well on this episode. And uh, yeah, we want to talk about uh, the Florida Project, which came out. What, what year was that? 2016, 17, 20, 2017. Um, yeah. Benjamin sent us a few a few thoughts that he had on the film, and I thought that they were pretty interesting. Uh, maybe we should start there. Do you wanna Do you wanna kind of go into them, Benjamin? Sure, sure. I I find this movie really interesting to think about in part because this is a movie where everybody is put in no-win situations, where everybody is being put into structural circumstances where they can't win. Mm -hmm. No matter what they try to do, they end up in some kind of trouble. And the state makes two appearances in this movie. It's a movie about um, a single mom living in a welfare hotel near Disney World with uh, a small daughter. And initially, at the beginning of the movie, she gets fired from her job as a stripper and goes to the state for welfare benefits. And the state turns her down because they say that she was fired for cause. But the reason that she was fired is that she refused to have sex with a patron. So she loses her welfare benefits because she refused to be a prostitute effectively. And then later in the movie... She is reduced to a level of poverty that pushes her into prostitution. And when that becomes known, she loses her kid because she worked as a prostitute. So first the state punishes her for refusing to be a prostitute. And then the state punishes her for being a prostitute mm -hmm. after it strips her of her dignity and her set of alternatives throughout the course of the rest of the film. And that's just one example. Every character in the movie who's an adult seems to be in this kind of no-win, impossible situation created by structure. Willem Dafoe's character, who is the kind of manager of the complex, he works for the landlords. He doesn't own the building, but he's a very uh, kind, nice guy who identifies a lot with the plight of the people who live there. And he tries to be this nice guy who helps everybody out. But at the end of the day, he works for the landlords. And when people break the rules, he has to throw them out. He has to punish them. So he's put in this, in this role that compels him to be crueler than he'd like to be sometimes. And he is constantly trying to prove to the tenants that he's on their side in some way. There's this scene where one of the tenants is using a laundry machine and the laundry machine isn't working very well. And, and he, says, he says to her, I'll fix that by the end of the week. And it's this pleading, please believe me, I really do care. <laughs> mm. <laughs> in, yeah, in the voice. Do you think that that's like a, an immoral um, position to, to sort of be like the right-hand man of, of a landlord uh, while also acknowledging that it's sort of like a cruel position and uh, it's kind of ruthless? Well, I, I think that the system that we live in shunts people into a lot of roles that are inherently troubling roles. Uh, 
And if you don't take a role in our society that's troubling, if you don't do things that are troubling, it's hard to, to go on living. The stuff that gets made in our society is made in an unethical way. The um, Many of the things that people do in the course of their day and their jobs are not particularly ethical. But if you go about systematically refusing to do anything that is unethical in some sense in our society, uh, then you end up on the street. Yeah. In our society, either you exploit people or you submit to exploitation or you end up on the street. It's very hard for anybody mm-hmm. to live a moral or ethical life. I, I often like to say that morality is kind of a luxury of people who are not constrained by necessity. We can think in moral Absolutely. terms when we're freed from having to go into these roles. Mm-hmm. And this is an interesting thing that I think came up when we were talking about Parasite, that the quote-unquote nicest characters in the film are the house owners, are the lady of the manor and her husband, you know, especially the, the mother figure, she's so lovely, but of course, you know, she she can afford to be so sweet and nice. There's a, a couple of things that what you were talking about um, made me think of. And the first one was related to, um, we were talking actually about it last week in terms of the people who have been protesting against the um, lockdowns in places like the Midwest and sort of liberal response being like how stupid these people are. But again, you know, I think this is indicative of our situation, binding people into a position where they are in a lose-lose wherever they turn. You know, they, they're protesting because they want to go back, want to get back to work or, you know, maybe a few people is holding up signs saying, I want to get a haircut. But realistically, it's, you know, it's extremely stressful on people that the lockdown has happened, but that they have only been compensated with $1,200. So, you know, we, we're in a system that is nominally a free society, but where is the freedom when wherever you turn, you are sort of bound by these constraints. The other thing I wanted to talk about was... Um, so you're talking a lot about sort of um, structures and being bound by, uh, you know, you turn one way and you're blocked, you turn another way and you're blocked. And potentially uh, uh, an enticing way that somebody might think, oh, we can overcome all of this is through an anarchistic position. And would you have criticisms for somebody who might see a situation like this and think, oh, yes, obviously we should just be anarchists. Let's just take away all of the structures. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I tend to, I tend, I'm very harsh on the anarchists. I, I always <laughs> have been. And the reason is that anarchists tend to only be able to see power and to see exploitation and abuse when it's formalized. And mm-hmm. they think by deformalizing power that that gets rid of it. And power is, is more fundamental to human society than that. And so when we get rid of structures, what we do is we make it hard to see where the power is which makes it hard for us to challenge that power or hold it to account. The most tyrannical organizations are the organizations where power and roles are are not formalized and we don't really know who's in charge. Because if we don't really know who's in charge, then everybody can tell everybody else, oh, no, it's not me. I'm not in Mm -hmm. charge. I'm not trying to make you do anything. It's, Mm -hmm. It's the informal structure where the power is the most unsettling because that's when your whole perspective is constantly being videated by everybody around you in their efforts to say, oh, no, 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 I'm not someone who tells other people what to do. This is a, this is democratic. It's like, uh, do you, right. do you yeah. see like a like a relation uh, between that and what I forgot who was the guy? Maybe, you know, um, but he, he called it agentic state, which is basically 
it's it's a way in which you just sort of become uh, a, a puppet of of whatever power you know and it's like you have no choice and you purely become sort of like a vessel that is acting always in the name of something else that is like sort of uh indifferent but also at the same time it's just like impenetrable and maybe even like unimaginable um there's no relationship between like the person that is given order and the person that's giving orders because it's always mediated by this like person that is in like in a agentic state i forgot what the guy the psychologist that came up with that uh name but it seems do you think that there's something like that like bobby is sort of caught in this in this relationship where I, it's it's hard for me to 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 figure out whether his position is sort of cynical or if he's really if he really does feel like compassion for for these people um or if it's something to protect himself from the fact that he is kind of like in this agentic state. Yeah, I think that there's kind of, I think it's both. I think that there is a an element of self-protection when you go into a role like that, because Bobby is certainly much better off than the people he is having to manage. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I do think that a lot of people make themselves feel good about those roles by persuading themselves that they're doing it better or more gently or more yeah. kindly than someone else would do it in their situation. Uh, yeah. And I, I think that a lot of s systems, to make a, a, a structure legitimate itself, that the structure has got to get you to see yourself the way the structure wants you to see yourself. There's a self-conception mm -hmm. that comes with being a subject of a structure. And that self-conception is not something that we freely choose. When someone enters into a capitalist role and sees themselves in that role in a particular kind of way, uh, that self-conception is not something they've freely self-developed. So I think when we look at someone like Bobby, Bobby is also very much a victim of this insofar as he has been pushed into thinking of himself as a good person in a role that is inherently inherently dubious mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so he his whole sense of self-worth comes from trying to do this dubious role in the least bad possible way yeah absolutely um it's yeah under capitalism even the winners lose almost um i was you know obviously there's what, what is it the, the boots theory about uh the poorer you are, the more expensive your life is. And obviously the sort of credit system we have in the West under capitalism, whereby, you know, it costs poorer people more to have money or to, to do things because they have lower credit or whatever. And the amount that, the, that these people have to pay to, to live in these motels is extortionate. You know, it's much more expensive than it would be to rent a flat. Um, yeah, and to be just caught in that perpetual zero credit or no credit or bad credit uh it's really it's really really tragic just another level of um yeah being bound by something completely out of your control yeah and one of the things that is like a really perverse to me is just how someone that is in a position to control and to have someone that is just putting a human face on sort of like the ruthlessness of capital through someone else um 
and we've talked about this a little bit before helen but it's just like it's their sense of devotion to like the market or just like the way that things work through capitalism um they don't see it as something that benefits them it's they see it as something that they sacrifice themselves for i don't know if you saw this uh this this uh, article that Ezekiel Emanuel did for the Atlantic it's called why i hope to die at 775 and he's a doctor uh and basically he was saying that um nature sort of takes its course and once you're over 75 you're not contributing anything to the market that your life becomes sort of like it takes more than it gives so he's just suggesting a, a new form of ideology for people that are that are like willing to take it and it's like yeah after i'm 75 i'm the market is sort of suffering because of me so it's better if i die and it's this perverse sort of like it's horrendous. yeah it's horrible it's fucking horrible and uh, yeah, it's just like they they see their the worth of their own lives is just like directly through the market, and it's uh, I don't know like how how do you mediate that through like emotion, you know, uh, like like Bobby in this case, it's it's a it's a it's a really perverse task, I think. I think you know the perversion as well for me. Um, I think the film does it really well by by kind of evoking the horrible Disney veneer, the pretty pinks and the rainbows and the, yeah. through the child's perspective, because it is really perverse that we we cover things up with a, a sort of yeah you know an American dream Mickey Mouse veneer and the you know we see this really frequently these days with the, the banks using the pride flag and the aesthetics of something nice and lovely and friendly, mm -hmm. um, really to be completely terribly exploitative in ways that we've, you know, obviously seen during history, but you know, this is things that are happening in terms of the exploitation of the system. Mm -hmm. it's, it's as bad as it ever was. I started to notice this a couple of years ago, actually in LA, um, and I've now seen it much more frequently. And the first time I saw it was, uh, it was in 2017 at one of my favorite ice cream stores. And it is this kind of hipster Portland ice cream, you know, lavender, vanilla, and white chocolate, raspberry ice cream type place. <laughs> and they had this, I won't name names, but they had this sign on the window that was like, you know, we welcome uh, women, LGBT, trans, people of color. Da, da, da. It's like, yeah, of course you do. Yeah. <laughs> of course you do. You, you want to take money from anybody. Um, but now, <laughs> you know, I, I start to see that everywhere. It's very annoying. But yeah, I think this points to what you were saying, Benjamin, about explicit power and... Um, hidden power and how the hidden power is almost more exploitative yeah it's it's just much harder to see and one of the things that's been popular on the on the left in recent years has been cooperatives and i mm -hmm. am always exceptionally critical uh, of co cooperatives because when you conflate owning with working when you conflate being the employer with being the employee that turns people into their own bosses and it turns mm -hmm. them into the bosses of their coworkers instead of in some kind of solidaristic fraternal bond with the people alongside them. Everyone is now responsible for making sure everyone else works as hard as possible to make the firm as efficient as possible to make it competitive in the market. And the so, fact that so that has become an increasingly popular vision for what socialism means horrifies me. So what would you, in terms of the idea of, you know, seizing the means of production, how would you kind of um, align that or compare that or, I don't, how does that fit in with this idea of cooperatives or do you think it's just a stupid idea? Well, I think that, that they're focusing too much on the property relation and not enough mm -hmm. at markets. 
I think one of the things yeah. that separates a lot of utopian socialists, anarchists, libertarian socialists from Marxists is that for Marxists, it's not just about ownership. It's not just about mm -hmm. property. It's also about the incentives created by the market and the effects yeah. those have on people. And mm -hmm. that's something that the cooperative project is never appropriately dealt with. That's very true. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I, yeah, it's sort of a, a panopticon of... Uh, of pressure to to produce and profiteer rather than just yeah at least you know where you stand when you're just a, a regular employee um and i guess that's the thing you know there's there's a material question and a subject title question because you, know, you can be like materially potentially more exploited in a way out uh, in a in a corporation let's say not a cooperative but yeah the subject title uh exploitation can be even more immense and I think yeah this is something it's something that we talk about a lot the kind of su subject title phenomenological like dimension to to capitalism um which I think a lot of yeah left-wing critiques do do just miss mm -hmm. um and yeah it can be kind of yeah there's a there is a, a like a perspectival dimension to it yeah um, the, the responsabilization angle is is so yeah. critical that for for capitalism the way that it gets you to see yourself the way it needs you to see yourself is it gets you to responsibilize yourself to believe that you are responsible for your own level of productivity and mm -hmm. for making yourself as efficient as possible. That's where that Ezekiel Emanuel piece hits home, that you are responsible for ensuring that you're contributing more than you're consuming. And if you get past 75, you're responsible for recognizing that you are no longer useful. Uh, here, it's even beyond it's it's like beyond meritocracy yeah. right it's uh it's it's it, it's not just about merit because it's like it doesn't even give an option of like once you're over 75 you can still have merit i mean which would be horrible in it in itself but yeah it's 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 beyond that i think it's like uh, even if you have merit you're you're taking away more than you're giving and that's you know you, you should end your life because of that yeah you have to view yourself as a commodity, as something that with a, with a value. And with the cooperative, by taking you and making you a worker owner, you make yourself the salesman of yourself. Yeah. And in that way, you, you make yourself feel responsible for curating and improving the value of the product and all that stuff about self-improvement and self-care and all of that. It's all about taking care of the value of the product. To, and you become your own manager, you become your mm -hmm. own boss. It, uh, you see the same thing with independent contractors, too. Independent mm -hmm. contractors get heavily, heavily responsibilized in this way. Yeah, absolutely. This free, the freedom of being a freelancer. I mean, I do harp <laughs> on about this a, a great deal. There's so many aspects of, you know, 68 onwards and this sort of belief that, oh, take away institutions like marriage and one will be you know, happier, freer, everything will be great without realizing that a lot of things are defenses against mm -hmm. the market. So a lot of things that were viewed to be, you know, patriarchal, archaic structures that were imposing on people's lives actually potentially were the opposite, <laughs> were sort of um, bulwarks against the encroachment of capitalism to every dimension of your life. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and this idea, you know, people talk about, I, one of my favorite TV shows, it's Mad Men, obviously, it's a great TV show. Uh, the idea of the miserable 1950s housewife and that, oh, going to work would make you happier. The fact is, of course, the woman in the workplace is still going to be miserable. <laughs> you know, you're miserable at home or you're miserable in work, you know, which choose your exploitation, you know, choose your, choose your lack of satisfaction. And the idea 
that a career or um, working under capitalism is inherently satisfying, I think is something that is completely, completely false. I mean, the whole point is that you do not get satisfaction. Well, actually, I mean, psychoanalytically, satisfaction means uh, the enjoyment of not getting what you want. But anyway, but let's say in non-psychoanalytic terms, it's, you know, it, it, you, you're sacrificing yourself. You're not, you're not uh, doing what you would absolutely love to do by definition. Otherwise, you wouldn't be being paid for it, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a, a real profound misery, I think, especially in recent generations, because the narrative that has come down to us is that work is the way in which we will self-actualize. We will self-actualize oh, through our roles in capitalism, right? Uh, and if yeah. that's if that's what you believe, you're going to be very disappointed in life, as I think many people in our generation are being disappointed uh, once they leave university and discover what it actually is that their parents were constantly telling them would be so wonderful for them. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's totally Hitlerian, you know, work will set you free. I mean, that's Auschwitz. But um, yeah, I, and I, I do put a lot of... Um, I mean, this is just a hot take rather than anything actually potentially credible, but it's just a trend I noticed was that a lot of, I think, um, people my age, uh, certain uh, pol political, quote-unquote, movements actually had to do with the emergence of sort of a fourth wave or a millennial version of, say, feminism. is really to do with um, an intense dissatisfaction upon arrival in the capitalistic market, having been trained or had their youths capitalized upon in a way that their parents never had, you know, having huge amounts of qualifications, preparing them for themselves for the market, and then you get there and it's just profoundly disappointing. Yeah. And going back to something that you said, Helen, is just like, um, what you were talking about, uh, the, 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 the institution of marriage is something that, that, that is a defense against uh, capitalism. And I just think that it's funny because it's okay. So, maybe for millennials more than more than other generations it's like you have a direct sort of evaluation of your value as a person against the market uh and it's pretty clear um it's it's almost like the amount of money that you make it makes your personal value and work sort of becomes this like signifier for your own for your own value and I think that the sort of intuition that a lot of millennials have is to try to to give to give their back to to work as much as possible. Uh, so when you're outside of work, it's something it's almost like a suspended space that you want to cherish because you're not being constantly reminded that your value is like so low. Um, and maybe one of the reasons why a lot of people are like sort of getting into like polyamory and uh, all these things that are sort of like uh, an escape from the work of marriage. Uh, it might be because of that. It's because it, it feels, it's starting to feel similar, you know, like capitalism sort of like incorporates everything into it and it's starting to like, even the value, the positive value of work and hard work, it's it's something that is like being antagonized now because it's it's directly related to this to this value thing, uh, a personal value. Yeah, and I think that the, the, the personal value value thing is profound. You know, this is something I think that the the notion of meritocracy is extremely painful. And coming back to a lot of what Benjamin is saying, this responsabilization, it, it, it's. It's profoundly, you know, it, obviously I'm not comparing the lot of the, the surf to, to, you know, the majority of people now. 
you know, at least one knew where one stood or at least in heaven one could um, experience something positive. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this, this, this uh, God descending to earth and uh, we being our own sort of little gods in charge of our own productivity. Um, and also, I mean, the, the next st- step of that is, is the New Age move, um, things like manifestation, um, yeah, that 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 the fact that not only has have your your material actions uh, not earned you something, but it's because you haven't thought positively, or you haven't um, done your astral projection board, or you haven't uh, you know envisaged yourself in a position just like Oprah did, because she she <laughs> manifested it, she controlled it with her emotions and her mind, mm-hmm. and therefore she she materially realized it, and therefore she deserved it. It's terrible. It's so hedonistic. Um, yeah. Well, and, and the people, of course, who are subject most severely to this are professional mm-hmm. class millennials, people who grew up yeah. with parents who were pushing them very hard to seek self-actualization in the workplace. Working class millennials, I don't think, have that experience to anything like the same degree, because for a lot of them, their parents just wanted them to be okay and to be able mm-hmm. to sustain themselves. And part of the trouble that we've had in the American left is that the Bernie Sanders' movement became very much embedded in this particular kind of professional class millennial psychological malaise that comes out of this distinctive experience of having been prepared for self-actualization in the market and then finding the market unsatisfying. And a lot of the hostility to capitalism is a distinctly pitched in the aesthetic of that professional class millennial. And that Absolutely. was that was limiting. It was hard to get the broader working class behind the movement to anything like the degree that we were looking for because of the extent to which the movement was led by and led for this particular kind of alienated, professionalized millennial subject. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. I know um, it is interesting the, the way in which... Um, there was a yeah a talking towards that that well we talked about this a lot um benjamin last time but sort of the, the moralism versus material you know material political concerns and of course there has been a a real pivot towards uh moralistic questions um and i do find it interesting that a lot of people of my generation potentially my background instead of you know the, this term patriarchy instead of to me, what I think people mean when they say patriarchy is just obviously like capitalism. And instead of being able to make a critique on the material level, I don't know if it's because if you actually made the real critique from the position of being an upper middle class millennial, then you would actually see that your position is not that bad compared to the vast, vast majority of society. And that potentially a way that you can maintain your your um, position on the rung, you know, as even though maybe you're sliding down the totem pole is to ignore material questions and turn to sort of moral policing. But the question, you know, so, so there's, there's a symptom is identified, you know, uh, somebody who's more materialist might say the market, and somebody who might be more um, liberal might say, oh, it's the patriarchy. And so the, the sort of critiques that are laid at what would otherwise be a material critique is, you know, my boss, who happens to be a 60-year-old man, is flirting with me. You know, it, it is, so, so instead of, you know, there's a recognition of a symptom, but a complete inability to see it on a structural level and look at it more on, in moralistic terms. Well, and I think there's an attraction to the moralistic terms in part because 
when you have bad self-esteem and a bad relationship with the self and being set up to self-actualize through the workplace and then not being able to do it will, of course, give you bad self-esteem and a bad relationship with the self. The way out of this is to attach yourself very thickly to a very dogmatic moral creed where you can be high ranking on that moral scale, which sits apart from the scale that you were socialized from birth to be sensitive to. So your economic failure will be compensated for by your moral success, and your moral success will be demonstrated by your superior facility with the Mm -hmm. rules and language and discourse of the moral movement that you assimilate into. And I think in other generations, at other points in history, when something like this might have happened with a a group of people becoming very disappointed in this deep way, it would have manifested in religious movement and a spiritual Mm -hmm. revival. But because this particular generation can't do that, because the aesthetic and its its, uh, mores don't line up with the religions that are in the neighborhood, the move is to go into a particular kind of identitarian leftism. Yeah. So you might not, you might have failed on the you know material capital front, the cultural capital front, but you can be you have moral capital and be sort of a high priestess of identity politics. Well, and in going to university, you pick up a lot of cultural capital. Yeah. You pick up quite yeah. a bit of that, and you retreat into that to make up for the lack of your actual capital, and yeah. parade the extent to which you are familiar with, to to which you are woke. And the word woke implies that there are some people who are asleep that you're better than. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an enlightenment. Benjamin, I kind of, yes. I kind of want to go back to something that you said. Uh, I thought it was very interesting, um, and and it seems to me like the adherence to identity politics also like plays into it. But you made a distinction between uh, the managerial millennial class and then also just the working class that is not, you know, it maybe doesn't get too much into sort of like the existential implications of valuing your life through your work or or the product of your the production of your work um do you think that maybe becoming more politically aware um it even as even if you're working class uh you do start to understand the pressure uh of of capital uh and you do start to get a sense of why you should maybe feel existential dread even if you're not too close to it uh uh, like through your experience but um do you think that maybe that's one of the reasons of the failure of, uh, of, of Bernie's campaign, that it's, it's just too painful to go through it, to become that politically aware? And the reason why I say that the identity thing plays into it as well is because um, it seems to me like identity is a refuge and it's a way to, to ignore that, that existential sort of dread. Um, I don't know. Do you buy that? Well... I do think that it's very difficult to be in any kind of rigorously Marxist headspace for a long period of time without it being a bit immiserating. It's hard to have these kinds of beliefs about the world around you without being very frustrated and resentful. Uh, I, I also think that there is a degree to which there has been such a decline, especially in the United States, of unions, of civil society organizations that organize workers, that the worker today has been pushed into a position that looks more like the lumpen proletariat than Mm -hmm. the worker of the post-war era. And so Mm -hmm. the relation to capital for the worker is more visceral 
insofar as the, the worker is constantly worried about actually living paycheck to paycheck and losing their house and losing their, their basics. And so it's a much more kind of desperate relation with capitalism than the right. professionals have. The professionals can cloud all, over it in all of this cultural language because there mm -hmm. still is a level of cushion. And the ultimate level of cushion is, of course, moving back in with your parents, which some people can do and other people can't do. Mm -hmm. um, and Absolutely. yeah, I, I think that's the, the trouble is that we have a working class that is more like the lumpen proletariat, but our theory has not taken this into account. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think that there's yes, yeah, so many signifiers. The signifier signified relationship now, in, in political terms, is just completely skewed. Like even the terms left and right, especially in like common discourse. There's there's something that I've noticed, and I don't know if this is a legitimate thing to have noticed, but. You know, it can seem strange that the media, um, the arts world, the cultural world is so liberal, liberal left, let's say. And then we have, um, you know, politics that's essentially quite right wing. Um, and it seems to me that there's been some kind of like divergence where the left, took, well, the quote unquote left, let's just say, the liberal left took up, um, took up, you know, position in, in the culture and sort of the, the conservatives took over politics. Is, is there anything to that? Because it, it, there is this, this sort of weird disconnect. And I think for people, um, potentially I, a lot of people I went to university with are, are journalists in London, let's just say, working for people like The Guardian and stuff, and that they might be very confused, you know, why that might be the case. Or, you know, you do, you do see this a lot where, you know, people are just so shocked that Trump came into power or so shocked that the Conservatives had a landslide win in, uh, in December. Does that make any sense? Well, yeah, I think from the point of view of capital, it makes a lot of sense to have a cultural sphere dominated by liberalism, uh, because mm -hmm. if it's cultural liberalism, then it appears to be radical and transgressive, but it's not economically threatening. And mm -hmm. by having this transgressive social discourse that's not economically threatening, we create an illusion of contestation. And so you mm -hmm. can pitch the more socially liberal, socially accelerating branch of capitalism against a more conservative, more protective uh, kind of nationalism versus cosmopolitanism, really. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, the way I see it, both nationalism and cosmopolitanism are entirely compatible with capitalism and liberalism. Mm -hmm. uh, the only difference is the is the aesthetic. And uh, there are yeah. some meaningful differences on a few social positions. But that is able to create the illusion of a robust political debate when in reality it's a very, very small thing. And I think from the point of view of capital, if you had a debate that was entirely within the right, that would be a lot harder to legitimate than a debate where there is this faux radical movement that Absolutely. ostensibly contests ground. And technocrats, I think, rely very heavily on the existence of a kind of faux anarchistic radicalism for mm -hmm. them to be pretending to fight with when in reality it's all of a piece i mean i i couldn't agree with you more i i would say that when you see people who call themselves activists in terms of let's say the sexual realm or feminism or something to me it seems quite obvious that they're really just the legitimators that they're, they're basically the harbingers of the spread of capitalism into a different into a once private sphere of of life and that they really are the you know the the, the leaders of 
of you know they, they they are like the I don't know the, the spirits the unicorns driving the forward motion of capitalism. They are they are precisely not activists. Yeah, and, that makes and any sense. <laughs> yeah, and part of the way that that capitalism sustains itself is by legitimating itself through some set of legitimating discourses to the populations it considers sufficiently concerning. So capitalism yeah. never tries to legitimate itself to the lumpen proletariat because the mm-hmm. lumpen proletariat is held by. Uh, deep economic subjugation to the point where it doesn't have the level of organization to meaningfully offer resistance. The population that you do talk to is the population with some level of organization that has some level of ability to punish the state in some kind of way for failing to legitimate itself. And in our contemporary context, it's the professional class that still has a level of organization sufficient to cause some kind of trouble. Mm-hmm. And what capital has found is that the professional class can very easily be bought off with discursive garbage that doesn't do yeah. anything for anybody. Let's talk a bit more about discursive garbage, our favorite topic, um, because obviously we have in this situation. OK, let's let's take the word intersectional, for instance. OK. I'm going to talk, quote unquote, intersectionally about the lady in this film who is a sex worker and working class. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's a there's a dynamic there where this is somebody who I would say the main issue is not her being a sex worker, but is actually her being an exploited person within our society. And of course, when we have uh, discourses around sex, well, I think, you know, the term sex work is work. Yeah, I've heard that one. Absolutely. You know, it is. And that's not something maybe that to to like trumpet proudly. (laughs) Yeah, the issue is that Um, the people who say sex work is work think that by saying that they're normalizing sex work. But what that mm -hmm. should do is it should make us think very seriously about what work is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And the thing is, like, um, they're essentially conflictual issues. Um, Yeah. Uh, so this idea that you can align these things and and I, I find it interesting the sort of like so we have this antagonism you know the market is essentially antagonism which generates exploitation and we can paper it over in many ways and this idea of intersectionality is just you know it's just you're extending the plaster a tiny bit more by just you know saying it's a bit more complicated than we originally thought but essentially I mean it's it's a meaningless term Helen, do you really think that they like uh, it's really thought out that much, or do you think it's more of an enjoyment thing? Sometimes it seems to me like there's a sort of desperate craze that a lot of people are going through, and it's just there's an enjoyment of the unpleasure of just like giving sort of like the last remnants of what is meant to be sort of like your private life, and and sacrificing it in, uh, to this sort of like machine, right? And it's it's funny that there's like this 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 binary sort of distinction between like sex and work and i don't think it's a mistake i think there's a sort of like conscious enjoyment of sort of the grotesque nature of it yeah i mean i think i think that look i'm not saying that sex work is grotesque i'm just saying that that that, (laughs) (laughs) i'm saying that uh yeah absolutely yeah do you understand i mean it's just like wanting to bring those two things together in a way that is like harmonious is grotesque Um, Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, yeah no I think you're absolutely right about this idea of sacrifice because essentially you know value is generated under capitalism by sacrifice and yeah and over the age of sacrifice uh, 75 
one doesn't have any any more energy to sacrifice uh, on the altar of the market. And so, yeah, I mean, taking something extra. And, okay, this is obviously not to say like I'm completely pro sex work. Okay, right? <laughs> you know, like yeah, yeah. If you, but because uh, I, I am totally not moralizing about sex. But in terms of the encroachment of the market, you're taking something extremely private, and um, yeah, you're you know sacrificing it on the altar of capital. So, so this idea that in some way that the sex worker is outside of capitalism or has a special position in relation to capitalism or can tell us people who aren't sex workers something about you know the experience of capitalism okay that's one thing but there's kind of you know levels of of engaging with social questions like this right there's the kind of little kid straight edge position where you just have picked up that the norm is that you don't do something like sex work and you're just revolted by sex work (laughs) right then there's the point where you're questioning the norms and when you're questioning the norms uh you are operating from a position of skepticism, which makes all of the norms seem invalid. And they all seem invalid, and you want to trash all of them in a very 1968 kind of way. Then you you get to a point where you you are able to see why those norms formed and what their purpose was. And that can have a very conservative effect. Mm -hmm. Or you can combine that with some level of critique and start to think about how could we revise or improve and that's where we want to be. We want to be either in coming to understand why the norms exist and deciding that we like them or coming to understand why they exist, but nonetheless deciding they need to change. And through our understanding of how they work, changing them in a way that will provide a level of structural integrity to our society. And the people who are still either revolted by something or they are in the mode of throwing everything out, if you're in mm-hmm. one of those two modes, anyone who doesn't agree with you looks like they're in the opposite mode. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. You know, this is, I always use the term Jordan Peterson and his fellow SJWs. You know, there's a, there's a yeah, a two sides to the same coin of, of the, you know, the anarchists and the, and the, and the traditional conservatives. But uh, yeah, this is a sort of synthesistic position and, you know, purely structural. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um, there was something I was going to, oh yeah. This is, this reminds me of when we were talking about uh, Brexit. You know, this is this is an issue where I think uh, uh, Benjamin that the like mode of, of approach to it is quite similar to to what you were just saying in terms of sex work, where you could have you know one the the, the very simplistic one. Um, this is terrible. This is utterly awful. And then you know understanding structurally why it had, why it might happen, and then having some way of kind of you know, measuredly um, looking at how we move forward. And I think there was a term that was kind of thrown around around the time of Brexit of like um, something in revolt. Can you remember what it was? Reform and revolt? Yeah, reform and revolt was briefly yeah. thrown around. Yeah. Yeah, um, which to me I think is sort of quite an anarchistic idea. I don't know, it seemed a bit, I don't really know what it meant, but it just, it really, what you were just saying really kind of jolted that in my mind as something that had been, discussed in relation to to brexit sort of throw everything out yeah learning something from it yeah yeah one of the great disappointments of european politics over the last 10 years for me has been the total inability of the left to build any kind of multilateral pan-european coalitional kind of thing the Mm -hmm. left has not been able to form any kind of cross national alliance to try to imagine some sort of alternative structure for europe and instead gets into these performative uh, modes where it is uh, 
just wanting to rebel against the European Union, either individually through a singular nation state uh, or in this kind of reform and revolt mode where even the rebellion is not full throated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What uh, it's, Benjamin? It's been very sad, Benjamin. What what effect the um, the the end of the Bernie campaign or the failure of the Bernie campaign due to your politics? Do you feel like maybe you were hoping to be more involved uh, politically, but now it's just kind of going going to a, a critical position? Or how did how, how did it affect your your political views? Well, I never really imagined that I would would be picked to be at the center of anything because I never really expect any anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I think that I the the thing that initially I really liked about the Bernie campaign was that it gave me some level of hope that even if people do not have ideologically worked out positions, if you bring someone along who is able to cathartically hit what they're feeling yeah. Mm-hmm. That that could serve a left wing purpose rather than just a right wing purpose. And mm-hmm. that maybe we could, without having to get everybody to be fully class conscious and, and so on, nonetheless have a movement that could achieve something that could lay a groundwork for a future. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that's really disappointing is that there there does seem to be this this dominant discourse within the left this professional discourse that is too large within the left to displace, but too small within the country to be the genesis of anything constructive. Yep. A very post-1968, and increasingly it's been inherited by Generation X and carried forward very much by Generation X, discourse that is thoroughgoingly social and only intermittently interested in talking about the economy as a way of performing concern for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And that is really dispiriting for me. And so what I've been kind of doing in the months that have followed is, is looking for what, what else could we do? How could we tap into people who are outside of this professional class? Yeah. Uh, what mm-hmm. would that what would that involve? And it's, I think it's going to require, if there is a way of doing it, and there may not be, but if there is a way, it's going to require violating a lot of the cultural norms of the professional class. We're, we're, we're going to have to do stuff that they don't like. And what? we're going to have to do stuff that we don't like because we are professional class, most of us. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to, to live in a way that makes us uncomfortable. What did you, you think I mean, about? You guys have talked. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say I think you mentioned the term like class traitor previously, Benjamin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and I think you know, one of the I've I've really I started one of the people I've I've taught a bit at Cambridge over the last few years is Franz Fanon, and mm-hmm. initially I went okay Fanon, uh, but over the years I've come to really like teaching him, uh, and. A big part of why is that self-awareness Fanon had that because he was French uh, in his education, in his socialization, he was always going to be uh, a bit, a bit of a liberal in his way of being, in his cultural values, in his aesthetic, and that that was always going to make him and other people of his background unsuited to some degree to leading something like this. Yep. Uh, 
the difficulty is the people who aren't of that background are not in position to lead or to organize because they are very much smack under the thumb of the system. And so the left has gotten into this back and forth. A lot of people who are critical of identity politics, I think, have gotten into this back and forth between trying to find this idealized worker subject that Mm -hmm. they're thinking about from the 20th century that no longer exists, that through precarity has been more or less eradicated from the earth. Uh, And and in the course of doing that, fetishizing a lot of the remaining unions and acting Mm -hmm. like union trade union politics is going to somehow be able to come back. A a kind of left that is trying to relive the past and trying to pretend that past material conditions still obtain. Uh, And I'm sympathetic to that left because at least that left cares about the economy, cares about workers, wants to, but it's not willing to reckon with where the workers are actually at. Uh, and mm-hmm. just how far they've fallen over the last 40 mm-hmm. or 50 years. Yeah. And we are not going to be able to go around and build some kind of trade union-based class consciousness now. It's, it, if we're going to get anywhere, it's going to be through something very cathartic uh, and, and very... Um, you know, for Fanon, is... it was violent. I don't necessarily think violent, but I do think it's going to be a very emotive thing, and it's not going to be mm-hmm. something that we're all going to find reasonable... That, that we're all going to like the way that it articulates itself. It's it's going to have to be something a lot dirtier. Yeah, which is something which is something that the left is like thoroughly missing, right? Because it seems to me that Trump supporters get a lot of catharsis politically. <laughs> uh, but I kind of I kind of wanted to go back to something that you mentioned about Gen Z. Um, what do you think about like I don't know if you've seen uh, Brett Easton Ellis's like interviews on Trump and millennials, but it's interesting to me that he has like this sort of proto Zen position where he he kind of has a cynical distance from politics and he kind of would like to think that it doesn't matter and he's constantly talking about like his boyfriend that is a millennial and how his life is sort of like falling apart every day uh, and he sees that like emotionally in him do you think that it's a mistake to to sort of categorize uh, politi- the, the political unrest of millennials as a pure hysteria rather than a reaction to something that is uh, real? Well, I think that it, some people don't like to talk about generations at all. I think there is yeah. some utility to it because capitalism at different points in time constructs subjects a bit differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you still have to talk about class. It's important to distinguish between, say, professional millennials and, and working class millennials. Uh, but there is a sense in which millennials writ large and certainly professional millennials are different from, say, professional boomers. Um, Where do you think like the, artists the fit into that? Artists. Now, uh, that's an interesting question. I think that a lot of artists have always been in an awkward position of to survive needing money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> we talked about this last week. Yeah, yeah therefore having to to defer to some degree to what capital is willing to buy. And a lot of Mm -hmm. artists, we talked about this last time, will comfort themselves by saying that they're making all of this money doing projects that reinforce the system because on the side they're doing smaller projects that almost no one will see that are more Mm -hmm. subversive. But of course, no one sees their subversive projects. I know. I think um, actually the 
last week's What's Left, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, they were discussing artists. And I, I actually had to, I would disagree with the argumentation on that podcast because I think, um, yeah, there, there are... Uh, what was the argument? I mean, I think it's the same. It was about artists, but I think the argument was more about sort of very liberal artists and how the arts has, in general has become very, very liberal. And as somebody who is working inside the arts, I can totally vouch for that. However, there are people who are making genuinely like committed and engaged work, but it, yeah, it doesn't get seen. But <laughs> there are sort of people who are really, really, really trying to do it. Um, and I think art as such, because I think the argument that I sort of was not agreeing with was that art as such is all about feelings and um, feelings are misleading. And I think art does have a huge amount of value. However, I think that the art the way that the market has just permeated to every sphere of life, um, it has become very, very, very difficult to produce like engaged art. But I don't think that means that, I, I think that is all the more reason to keep trying to do it, even mm-hmm. though your life might be very shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, like uh, American Idol and fucking, uh, and what, what is it? Uh, America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent has really just like castrated modern artists because it's, it really is just about like this like ultra consumerist uh, uh, oriented type of music. And it's just like, I mean, I, I, you know, I grew up kind of listening. To, I mean, not me personally, but it was around me all the time. Just like fucking uh, Clay Aiken, Kelly Clarkson, uh, Fantasia, whatever. Um, and it's just like it's yeah, it's a it's super commodified music where I would even be tempted not to call it art, you know. But yeah, no, I I think that um, certainly um, aspects of the film industry, the that's the sphere that I know have are just um, legitimation mechanisms for um so so what i see is that that it, historically there were realms that were protected from capitalism by things like grants um you had like the festival circuit sort of more quote unquote uh, art house orientated um organizations but those don't exist in the same way that they once did and a lot of that has become a liberal legitimation mechanism for for the market yeah. Yeah. yeah increasingly, to get the grant, less. you have to conform to the liberalism. Yeah. 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 I I um I like to do uh, in my supervisions on Aristotle. I often like mm-hmm. to bring up art uh, to discuss the distinction between virtuous and vulgar craftsmanship for Aristotle. Yeah. And for Aristotle, uh, to be a virtuous craftsman, you have to make something not for money or status, but on the basis of how you think the good applies to that thing. Mm-hmm. And that requires time spent contemplating how the good applies to that thing. And of course, mm-hmm. a lot of artists are not in a material position to spend, spend time. time contemplating yeah. or yeah. to spend time making that kind of art that won't produce any money. Mm-hmm. And of course, if an artist does do some of that, if that does catch on and become popular, the market will then start to try to mine them for more and more and more material. Yeah. And they will be deprived of the time that they need to continue thinking about what would be good music, what would be good art. And so one of the things that we always see is, is the artist that has come under the pressure of fame has mm-hmm. to get away from capitalism, has to run away, go somewhere else, go through a period where they are socially unacceptable because they've dropped mm-hmm. off the face of the earth. And this is all a means of getting back the time that is necessary to actually focus on the art. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, one of our good friends um, was a very popular uh, 
pop star in, in his late teens at the turn of the millennium. And he had two ridiculously massive selling albums Then had a car accident and just sort of dropped off the face of the earth. But, you know, he, he still makes amazing music. Like, like his work is just incredible. But yeah, no one, I mean, I do, I think there are things in the pipeline, but I mean, it's just interesting. Yeah, that is the precise sort of formula of, of how things go. But I guess, you know, in the past, let's say, um, periods of history, there might have been, you know, the, this idea of noblesse oblige, there might have been patronage. Uh, what is your opinion of something like that? We do uh, live in an oligarchy after all. <laughs> aristocrats were, I think, different in, in significant respects culturally from yeah. the bourgeoisie, insofar as aristocrats were uh, very invested in a culture that was built around virtues. And many of those virtues conflicted with the imperatives of capitalism. Mm -hmm. So when there was mm -hmm. a, a landed arist aristocracy that had its money through inheritance rather than through constantly forcing itself to compete for capital in the way yeah. that the bourgeoisie generate wealth, that landed aristocracy would sometimes produce work that was a little bit more critical of capitalism. Uh, mm -hmm. as that landed aristocracy has been increasingly sidelined and, and has gone increasingly to the margins, the rich are now overwhelmingly bourgeois people who mm -hmm. fetishize work ethic, who want work yeah. which fetishizes opportunity, fetishizes meritocracy. Uh, yeah. they, th there's a reason that the arist aristocracy regarded the bourgeoisie as nouveau riche, as, mm -hmm. as the vulgar rich. Uh, and... Yeah. They have vulgarized high culture as they have moved up into those positions and displaced the old families uh, mm -hmm. that used to read a bunch of philosophy and therefore thought that their wealth ought to uh, obligate them to make something of higher value. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the bourgeoisie doesn't recognize any higher value than the generation of wealth. Uh, there's no other value that is of significance to it. Great yeah, and just uh, just a point on um, the yeah the, the expansion. So yeah, the, you had these sort of uh, positions in society that were outside of capitalism. Yeah, and those positions have been uh, you know ellipsed by by capitalism. And I think the fact that Jeff Bezos's wealth has gone up by something like forty billion since the start of the um, coronavirus sort of shows the the massive inflation of capital, as in when one has it and how the ruling class and just these recently. Uh, recent billionaires basically you know that when you had these families historically who might have had wealth for thousands of years or something now it's sort of somebody who made a huge amount of money in 2008 is the new is the new aristocracy well yeah i don't know if the term aristocracy is applicable and i think it's interesting there's a, this whole cultural issue around um a certain american actress entering the royal family and i think there's a sort of a conflict between yeah bourgeois values and aristocratic values but anyway, yeah for um, all the things that can yeah. be annoying about inherited wealth and people who didn't have to do anything to earn their money, people who didn't have to do anything are to some degree aware that they have this money for no discernible reason. And while some of them will come up with means of rationalizing it, hiding behind their cultural capital in the same way that the professional class does, there are going to be some people who inherit money who will think that because they, they just got the money for no reason, they should do something constructive with it. The bourgeoisie, because the bourgeoisie have responsibilized themselves as the, the figures who created their own fortunes, as self-made, they're going to be much, much less 
creative in what they do with their money because they yeah. think that they earned it and therefore every single dime ought to service them in some way. And since they live in service of capital, every single dime will service capital. I think this this touches back on your earlier point about hidden power structures and overt power structures. And at least, yeah, in, in former uh, societal formations, yeah, it was accepted that things were objectively unfair. So yeah, there's sort of some some... Uh, moral move to rectify that in a tiny way, but yeah, the, the responsabilization narrative is is much more pernicious. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The more uh, the the less overtly exploitative the structure, the easier it is for the exploiters to deny their role. Yeah, and so in many ways, as we as we soften it in the language and we soften it culturally, we enable it to get harsher materially. Yeah. Absolutely right. What do you think about, um, so just talking about sort of art that can be uh, meaningful, um, I think there was a very good period in the early uh, 20th century that was engaged in a good way. Um, and I think that if art points towards a lack, um, points to conflict and contradiction itself, um, it might be objectively something that can't be capitalised upon as readily as uh Anything that yeah that that points to a particularity or some specialness or some utopian vision or some particularity, but yeah, I I I, I think about this question every day because it's like, how do you keep doing it if you want to create work that is, yeah, points to, yeah, the the basic yeah yeah I mean we we it is it, but I don't think it's I don't think it's especially relevant to art I think it's how do you become an academic or a thinker that really is not um, confirming the market with their work. Yeah. And I think the the um, the sort of new profession of activist and sort of activist academic type thing is, speaks to that. Yeah. Yeah, as the academy has become more thoroughly neoliberalized and marketized, academics have tried to pitch themselves as radical in a more overt way. Mm -hmm. In the old days, academics would try to play up their ostensible neutrality or objectivity. They would try yeah. to say that they were in, engaged in some kind of technocratic uh, discourse. Now that it is nakedly the case that whatever they're doing technocratically, it's in service of the market, there is a need to perform radicalism to try to demonstrate that that isn't the commitment. <laughs> and the academy <laughs> has point. gotten more overtly radical to hide the fact that it has gotten more conservative and more in line with with the the market um it's interesting um there's, yeah, there's, a, there's a, this is a conversation that i've been having with a few friends recently and and peter who is associated with this podcast has often gets he's outside the academy and he um funds his project through patreon um but uh there's a lot of um a, a certain group of supposed radical thinkers in the sphere that he works in who are so critical of him because they think that he is some kind of like i, I don't know what why they they hate him so so much that he's managed to create a career out of it but the irony is is that when you are yeah the position just as as, as you said benjamin to be to be radical within um the institution and the work they're doing is much more conservative, I would say, than the work that Peter does. But anyway, I think potentially he his work sort of points to that contradiction there. Yeah, and if you're in that mm -hmm. kind of situation where you have to, in some way, service capital to, to survive, uh, 
And your way of coping with that has been to persuade yourself that you are this very moral person, this very radical person, and you have picked up and gone to the trouble of picking up all of this cultural lingo, baggage, and so on Mm -hmm. to demonstrate to yourself and to others through virtue signaling that you are this radical moral moral person. Uh, When someone comes and goes, that's all a cover for the fact that you have merged with this and become part of it. That is a fundamental attack on the identity and a fundamental attack on the coping mechanisms that are employed by the person. And so, of course, the response has to be, has to be hatred. And also there's hatred because if someone can level that critique at you, that means that that person has sufficient material comfort that they can engage in that kind of critique. Mm-hmm. And that's the precise thing that you feel you were denied. And the way that you rationalize your situation is to say that no one can be in that position, that no one could do that, uh, except for someone who had just received a bunch of inherited money or something. Yeah. Or someone who is immoral. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why there's there's a chunk of people on the internet who, because my last mm-hmm. name is Studebaker and there was a car company mm-hmm. by that name that went defunct in the 60s, they like to say that I must have a huge pile of car money. Mm-hmm. Because that's the only way they can explain what I do. Yeah, I get that a lot with my accent. Yeah. (laughs) So I empathize. Um, I was just going to say something actually about language and the difference between um, structural critiques, looking at like literally the base rather than, let's say, the superstructure, and the way that it can be very um, difficult to differentiate between people who are actual structural structuralist thinkers or you know more materialist and people who are just using the language as a sort of a virtue signaling mechanism and there is online um a group i think benjamin and i have talked about them i don't know if i should name them by name but i think that it's it is a group that has um all of the the trappings of of uh material economic critique i think they even have you know an actual dedicated economist mm-hmm. but to me it's very much not that yeah. <laughs> um because i think it is uh, they use the signifier not the signified and um yeah i do know are there, are there any basically are there any ways that you would say to somebody that they could identify um a position or a group or a writer or something who is actually offering material critique versus somebody or whatever that is um, really just uh, confirming their own position on the totem pole. I mean, there are publications that I think this is quite obvious with, ones that have the trappings of the appearance of being left-wing, but potentially aren't. Does that, does that make any sense? Yeah, I would say that the tells that I tend to use uh, is when you're, we're, this person is being critical or this group or this organization is being critical of the structure, are they being critical of the structure or are they criticizing specific individuals or groups of people? And if they mm-hmm. talk about specific individuals and groups of people, is do they make an effort to look for the structural causes behind the behavior they don't like, or does it just become about these people and what's wrong with these people? Do do they get caught in a loop of being angry and frustrated with individuals and groups, or are they able to take a step back, abstract away from the, the viscerally upsetting behavior, and look at 
what in capitalism might be or what in, in psychology might be leading to that kind mm -hmm. of behavior. Uh, and you can often tell in, in the level of, of, of personalized anger that you see and, and that the shaming and the blaming and the, the outrage. Anger is, I think, very often a symptom of an individualist or group analysis. Uh, personal mm -hmm. anger. If we get angry at all, it should be in a very generalized way at, mm -hmm. at the state of the universe or the state of the world. It should not be particular at particular individuals or particular groups of people. Uh, when we're angry like that, we are not viewing those people as constructed subjects and as to some degree victims of the system. Every person, every group of people that we can think of is a victim of the system. And if we're angry at a particular person, in the moment that we're angry at them, we are not viewing, we're not remembering the ways in which they are also victims. But um, I, do, right. how do you, yeah. okay, so what this reminded me of is um, Bernie not calling Biden just senile or in cognitive decline, as they say. Uh, not okay. So Bernie wasn't like doing personal attacks, but maybe that affected his campaign in, in a bad way. Uh, do you think that he should have been more? <laughs> I don't know, like personal, as you're as you're, as you're saying right now. Yeah. So I think that there is a big difference in what we should want out of our analysts uh -huh. and what we should want out of people leading movements. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is where I get back to how I think we have a lumpen proletariat now that needs something cathartic and dirty. Yeah. Uh, we to, we need a movement that is guided by an analysis that is structural. But mm -hmm. it is going to be very hard to win with a purely structural discourse because we have a population that is heavily conditioned by this, by this stuff. So do you think that and Bernie that was a better means, analyst than a politician? Yeah, to a significant degree. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the trouble is that most of the people who are able to speak in a way that will mobilize do not have a good analysis and also do not defer to people who are good analysts. So if you look at someone like Trump, he is very able to use cathartic language, yeah. but he is much less able to understand the structure, understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. and, and the difficulty is that the skills that you need to make the right changes to the structure are very different from the skills that you need to build a successful movement. And it's, I think, something that has always been a problem for the left to some degree, that the best analysts often make for very poor leaders and the best mm -hmm. leaders often make for very poor analysts mm -hmm. and it yeah. comes from this inability to really get any kind of broad class consciousness where you would get say large numbers of workers able to make the the distinction between structural and not and able to say i'm for structural analysis and not for these other things it that was difficult to do even when we had trade unions and civil society organizations through which we could propagate discourse. Now we don't really have any of that. And now to get any attention as a media company, you have to compete in a market terrain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that means you've got to, to some way, cater to the emotions and sentiments which drive people's clicking behavior. Yeah. 
maybe one of the things that people mean when they say uh, like emancipatory subject as opposed to what you were talking about as, as a constructed subject is that, or maybe not opposed, but just a, a, a different type, um, uh, is, is perhaps a subject that is, that is cathartic in a leftist sense, but it, it, their analysis is sort of like secondary, but it's in the right place? Or would you say that you know, a, a leader necessarily needs to be also adept at doing a good analysis of capitalism? I think that because capitalism creates a lot of misery, capitalism creates a lot of negative self-feeling. And so capitalism creates a lot of people who are going to need to find something that makes them feel good about themselves. Mm -hmm. And that means they will not be able to approach it in a thoroughgoingly structural way. Because yeah. when we're joining movements to make ourselves feel better, we are going to virtue signal. We are going to look for ways in which we can use the movement yeah. to establish. Yeah, I, that is something that capitalism creates in people. And that is something that if you wanted to cure that or, or to fix that, you would need to have won. You would need to have won and have changed the structure in ways that don't produce those feelings of alienation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so any strategy that's going to work for us is going to have to be a strategy that takes into account the extent to which capitalism has badly, badly damaged and hurt the yeah. people that we need to motivate. We can't expect them to live up to our standards. Mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah. and in trying to get them to do that, it induces us to behave more like them and to judge them and to blame and shame and, and to commit the same mistake. Yeah. You know, okay, this is, a, I don't know if you've uh, heard that much about, you know, this, so we're talking about just before we start recording, evangelical Christianity. <laughs> and then there's the more Zizekian, I don't know if existential is the word because existential has sort of a conflict with the psychoanalytic position, but like a, you know, an atheistic Christianity. And in a sense that, um, let's say Jesus, and this is okay, coming from somebody who has not religious at all, never grew up in church, don't know anything about anything to do with religion. However, you know, <laughs> there's an element in that sort of um, Christian mode of, yeah, okay, what we're talking about is, is that sort of understanding of where someone's coming from basically, or forgiveness. <laughs> <laughs> or um, sin is in like a lacking position that we kind of have this inherent lacking position, this inability to, to, to live up to things and to yet yeah, to be able to accept that in the other. So we're talking about like a, a more original, the X means nothing, Nietzschean Christianity rather than like a, like a, a evangelical or moralizing, more kind of like a, a modern Calvinistic or Protestant religion, you know, kind of a, yeah, just an accepting of the other. Um, yeah, there are a lot of yeah, yeah. There, there is a, a kind of way of imagining Christianity in which the role of original sin, the role of God, is to take the place of the structural analysis that you're not going to do, that most people mm -hmm. are not going to do, as as saying this is why people aren't going to live up to any set of standards. But you have to forgive them anyway, and you have to accept them anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, and the thing that it doesn't give you is is a straightforward explanation of how you would alter society in a way that would enable people to, to do better, in part because Christianity isn't built around the idea that you can create uh, a structure on earth that will mm -hmm. deal with something like original sin. Yeah. Um, but in, to a large degree, that's what, that's what Marxism tries to do. It tries to identify the structural causes of that kind of stuff and 
find ways of changing the structure that gets us out of it. Yeah, I think this maybe that's why one of... I just love. Go ahead. So I was, I was gonna say this is why I like really love Freud and I can as well, and like other psychoanalysts because just as Marx is understanding the structures of uh, the market, okay, this is obviously the. Um, a lot of these, this, the, like the discovery of the unconscious has been weaponized terribly by the market. Um, but it's, you know, it's very easy to identify the, the way that it has and what's wrong with it, because essentially uh, the unconscious is just like a, a brick. It's like a nothing. It's like a staring at a Rothko painting. There's nothing there. Um, but yeah, they, they, the, the work of Freud is to like uh, material, like to, to look at the structures of the psyche and what creates subjectivity. Um, and I think there's a lot in it. But I'm not sure. Yeah, there's some people who look at it from a more political perspective of how sort of libidinal investment in markets is generated by the very structure of our psyche and subjectivity. Yeah. So, uh, any last uh, remarks on the on the movie? Oh yeah, yeah. To get back to to the Florida. <laughs> <part. laughs> <That old chestnut. laughs> yeah, yeah. I. It's it's the kind of movie I wish we had we we had more of um, mm-hmm. because it is one that I think gets us to think about the right things or or can get us to think about the right things and yet I can imagine a liberal going and seeing the Florida Project and seeing it mainly about sex work seeing it as mainly mm-hmm. about that and not about very much else uh, yeah it, and you, and that's that's the problem with a lot of this stuff is if you come into it from a liberal standpoint you you can. If you come to something with liberal eyes, all you will see in it is the liberalism. It's like wearing glasses that only see liberal light. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They live. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It would be great to do at some point an episode with you, Benjamin, on um, what a video game would have to look like for it to be emancipatory in that way that allows you to think about the right things because so many of modern video games are just, they're capitalistic in nature. Yeah. they teach you how to value sort of just uh, accumulation and all these other things. So it will be interesting to talk about. I don't know if you know a lot about video games, but it seems to me like you don't really have to. It's more just uh, theoretical than that. Oh, yeah. I, I play some games, uh, especially role-playing games with a lot of story in them. The Witcher yeah. 3, Dragon Age. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be great to do an episode on that at some point. Maybe we can ask, uh, uh, what's this guy's name? Alfie Bone? Alfie Bone? Uh, he did a he did a book uh, for zero books on on capitalism and video games. Interesting. Yeah, I, the Florida Project. I think it's just such a wonderful film. It's so moving. It's so just the counterpoint between like the the final passage of the film and the children in Disneyland. It's just I think it really it really it really hits a lot of uh, a lot of like the key key emotive points of our system and the key issues at hand and I, I think it's just such such an amazing achievement yeah yeah so should we call it should we call it there yeah 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 absolutely thank you so so much for coming on again benjamin oh thank um, you so much for having yeah, really me it's, it was great talking to you it's been great yeah great awesome. great to meet you and talk to you too adrian oh yeah yeah this is ditto all right well thank you for listening okay. and uh, until next time bye-bye bye-bye, bye-bye.